Welcome to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. So today we're going to be doing a little side detour. This uh, is a Dermot episode. Yeah, yeah, just to talk about things that I think might be uh, old hat to anybody who's Irish. But maybe not old hat if you're not Irish. They're new hat to the rest of us. They're new to you. Um, because there are aspects to the Irish personality that often I think get overlooked, uh, you know, as you'd expect. Um, by people who haven't spent any time there or much time there even. If you've gone on a holiday, you might not have even noticed it, but if you've lived there for a while, you probably have. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to talk about something that I've seen uh, from Ulysses, from the text, which is the uh, dominant Irish habit of begrudgery. All right, can we start out by defining our terms? What is begrudgery? Uh, it's, it's envy, but it's envy dialed up to a degree that's really hard to imagine because it can be, it's about being small, but being small in a really big way. Oh, and I, like I can give you some examples from uh, that. That was going to be my next question. So uh, I love my dad. He's a great guy and couldn't have asked for a better dad, but definitely a classic example of an epic begrudger. And I'll give you a minor example. So uh, during the 1980s, when the Irish economy collapsed, I always tell people I grew up in the Great Depression because in the 1980s for Irish people, it kind of was. And uh, that's, when, that's when we all tried to emigrate. And in my case, succeeded a couple of years after that decade ended. So I remember one day my dad was talking about one of our neighbors who painted his front door. And he said, did you see that stupid color he painted it? And I thought, it's not a great color, but it's hardly that bad. You know, I couldn't understand where the venom was coming from. And then, you know, sometime later I realized, well, he wasn't really angry at the color. He was angry at the fact that the guy across the street could afford a pot of paint to paint his front door. And he begrudged him that pot of paint and uh, just wasn't having it. You know, it wouldn't stand. Now, that's an example of something very small. Uh, But now let's go a little bit darker. So I'm laughing because I know where the story goes. <laughs> uh, so one day dad was talking about some neighbors who lived one street over and he said, those people are supers. And he said it with complete contempt. Now in America, if you say someone is super, it means they're great. Yeah. yeah. You like them. So I had no idea what the heck he was talking about. I thought, I thought there are fans of Superman, but what? And, and he said, during the potato famine... And then you go, oh, this is not going to go anywhere good, is it? Uh, so he said, during the potato famine, when everybody in the town was starving, the British came in with a gigantic pot of soup into the middle of the town. And they made soup and they offered free soup to any family who would convert to Protestantism, Church of Ireland, basically. And they took the soup. So he was begrudging, basically, essentially begrudging starving peasants in the 1850s or whatever, a bowl of soup. And, you know, the man is not even particularly Catholic. He would never call himself Catholic. He's fairly traditionally left wing and uh, would regard himself as an atheist. But here he was, suddenly this monster was roaring up out of the darkness and, and really, it was his mother. It was my grandmother coming through him, like pulling the Punch and Judy strings um, long after her death to, uh, you know, to control this like reflex, this thing that, you know, they should have starved. They should have just starved and died like good Irish Catholics. Was coming out of a man who hasn't been to church 
in like 30 or 40 years, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by begrudgery. And it's an aspect like when, when I, I love meeting, like, you know, when Americans come back from Ireland, well, we just got back from Ireland, we had a great time. And, you know, I always want to tell them, well, did you, did you ever have anyone begrudging a peasant farmer 150 years ago a bowl of soup? Because that's, for me, that's an aspect of the real Ireland that you'll never see when you're on holiday. Or even if you're consuming like Irish culture from a distance. I have a story to share with you then. Great. So on my first visit to Ireland, which is circa 2005, mm -hmm. I was told by someone in a pub somewhere in Kerry that my ancestors were supers because my last name is does not have O. Which... So, well, actually, as a tourist, I didn't experience that. <laughs> you are privileged. It made me sad. I was like, oh. But that could have been chopped Sorry? off in Ellis Island. You don't, you know, that that probably got lopped off in America. Uh, well, no. As as far as we know, it it predates. Um, it's the so without getting into this, the Bryan family tree is kind of a mess. In 2016, when I went to Ireland, I thought, oh, you know, my grandpa did all this family tree stuff before he died, mm. and one thing he said is that our there's a some castle in Clare that is our ancestral castle so I was like I'm gonna look that up because I'm gonna be in that part of the country and maybe I could go like drive by it or mm -hmm. something the castle was in Wales <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whose castle it is and uh, I noticed upon further inspection that Claire was spelled with an I in it so mm. I don't know and it was my opinion that the family tree was done with an eye towards proving that we're related to famous people right. <laughs> that it was maybe you know, more accurate. Yeah. But based on that, I think our, our family had dropped the O from Brian a long time before the famine. Like, it would have predated that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So... A lot of these um, O's... They're probably the... dishing the soup out to your your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. That's very mean of you. Just give them away <laughs> for free. Yeah, no, a lot of these Irish names get mangled. I mean, they're mm -hmm. all, like, anglicized and mutilated. Yes, yeah. like you know, uh, O'Connor. My surname is spelled so many different ways: mm -hmm. one n, two n's, Connors with one n, two n's, e r o r. So the original Irish is O'Croghor. It's unpronounceable mm -hmm. to an English uh, Ang <laughs> speaker, but why they were anglicized in the first mm -hmm. place? Could change my name to Kelly Nevrian. Mm, yeah, that would that would actually sometimes Irish mm -hmm. names sound more aristocratic than their English versions. So might be worth doing. Also, it confuses baristas and American mm -hmm. coffee shops. It make me weird. harder to search on Facebook if mm -hmm. you spelled your name. Or you might get a uh, false positive with one of them like IRA types that are coming back to have the, what? the I, okay. Anyway, they all, they all we, use Irish. <laughs> we have um, really succeeded in derailing ourselves immediately. Yeah, it's great. So this is a topic you've been floating to me for a while, and I've been trying to think of ways we could relate it back to mm. Ulysses and Joyce, so we'll, we'll kind of circle around through some ideas related to begrudgery, and I'll ask you some questions, and then at the end we'll talk about Joyce. So all you, you Joyce heads out there, we're, we're going to mm -hmm. keep you on the hook till the end, I guess. <laughs> so why do you think begrudgery, I feel like begrudgery is something that all humans experience. Why do you, why do you think Irish begrudgery is, is special, or why is it unique? Why, why is it something worth mentioning to help our non-Irish readers? It's just stronger. And, you know, you wonder why, you know, the obvious might be, well, it's post-colonial. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the result of 800 years of oppression by perfidious mm -hmm. Albion or some stuff like that. But 
uh, and others might say it's because of a thousand four hundred years of oppression by the Catholic Church or some other mm -hmm. stuff like that and always blaming some other external actor but I always wonder if it was baked into the Irish psyche like going back to the pagan and pre-classical period it's just when you grow up with it it's there it's mm -hmm. always there and definitely during the 1980s when I was still like working there into the early 90s you were just conscious that this this thing was like a living force you know you're always mm -hmm. watching the other person to see they might get like a five pound a week pay rise over you and mm -hmm. god help you if they did because you'd have to begrudge them that you know and it it's it's toxic because it kind of pollutes the culture and it pollutes your personality mm -hmm. and you end up like a decent man like my dad you know essentially holding in contempt people who are descended from people who had one bowl of soup 150 years ago. Allegedly. Allegedly. They might not have. It could be a story somebody made up to blacken mm -hmm. their name. And um, it's, I think in Australia, the, the tall poppy thing might be a r relative of it because mm -hmm. so many Irish people moved to Australia. Are you familiar with the phrase, a bucket of crabs? Yes, you've mentioned this where you... The, the, I, the are... idea is if you put a crab in a bucket, that is not an in, insurmountable obstacle for mm -hmm. a crab. It can climb out. Right. But if you put 10 crabs in a bucket, they all try to skitter out at once. Yep. And they'll pull the, any that get close to the top get pulled down by the ones that are still down in the bucket. So they all end up getting turned into soup. Right. So In, in the history of Irish rebellions, the great problem was always the informers. Mm. The informers would be the ones who would basically ruin it any chance there was of success would usually get collyboshed by a bunch of traders, basically. Mm. And I wonder to what extent that was motivated by begrudgery. Like, I'm not going to have you guys succeed. I'd rather, you know, I wouldn't, you know, the, the Milton quote, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. But some of these people would rather serve in hell than serve in heaven. It's really remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's self-destructive. I see, like, a, a lot of the uh, begrudgery that, you know, I'm familiar with, as you've been walking me through the text of Ulysses, mm -hmm. I'm thinking this is really starting to, mm -hmm. to to resonate with me in terms of like my experiences growing up. And the big question for me, having left the country in 94, would be to what extent it's lost its grip a little bit mm -hmm. on the country. With because the, the Celtic country has, Tiger yeah, and everything. The country definitely changed. They all waited till I left. <laughs> and then they decided to build all these new buildings. I think we got rid and, of that guy. And shiny roads and get these, this, like, all these fancy new internet mm. cables in. And, and now you go yeah. back and the place is hopping. So that's going to have a massive effect on the psyche. But then there's always this like, deeper layer. Uh, you know, when you bring in this new technology or this new culture, uh, that, I think that deep thing is still always there, like just asleep. Maybe mm -hmm. and just waiting for its time, waiting for a good recession to come mm -hmm. back. Do you think that begrudgery is greater in Ireland or does it just than in other places or does it just play a greater role in the Irish psyche because it's a a cornerstone of Irish identity mm. so that's how Irish people see themselves because again I I'm I'm arguing from the point of I feel like everybody begrudges everyone else yeah well I've been, I've been in America now for as long as I've been in Ireland mm -hmm. and I spent maybe a year in Canada and I've worked mostly with people from other cultures so even when I've not being in Italy, I have a lot of Italian friends. Mm -hmm. I don't detect a begrudging bone in the Italian body. Any of the Italian people I've worked with don't seem to begrudge in the way that the Irish do, unless they all do it in Italian and don't tell, you know, mm -hmm. don't tell us in the English so language. So how are you measuring this, just in terms of what they talk about or yeah, what they say? The way they talk, the way they yeah, regard mm -hmm. one another. And, you know, the, the uh, in Canada, you know, what I detected mm -hmm. in Canada was a lot of... <laughs> 
no offense to Canadians now, but uh, something that even though I'd worked with Canadians in Dublin uh, a great deal, when I actually worked in Canada, what really struck me about Canadians, and I might not have noticed it, noticed it if a Canadian hadn't written about it before I moved there, mm -hmm. was a, ca a Canadian characteristic, which they refer to as the whining. And <laughs> it sounds like a terrible movie starring Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> a horror movie if you're <laughs> in Canada. But the, uh, the amount of whining, Canadians are the, some of the luckiest people in the world. And the amount of complaining and grumbling those guys did was unbelievable. I mean, do you people realize how lucky you are? This is one of the best countries in the world. You don't know how lucky you are. Don't and, you think that grumbling unites us as people? Oh, certainly. But there's, there's like certain people who dial it up. You know, and <laughs> if you were to compare like Canadian mm -hmm. whining to American whining, no, there's no comparison. So I guess what I'm thinking is that I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in a fairly small town in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is when people come to visit, like, oh, my God, everyone's so nice here. It's mm -hmm. so cute. And they everybody welcomes you in their home and they hug you and they give you a pie and coffee and yeah. you walk away feeling loved. Uh -huh. But the, the truth is the minute that door's that you're out that door, they're like, oh, did you see his fancy shoes he was wearing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Who does he think he is, Mr. <laughs> Armani here with his fancy shoes or whatever right, it is. Right. Oh, Kelly thinks she's so smart with all her college degrees. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I feel like while we don't really identify ourselves, like I think Midwestern people put a lot of stock into being hardy. Mm-hmm. And being kind and nice, mm -hmm. like those are our two, that's how we define ourselves. Right. I do think we're fairly begrudging mm. because it's driven me crazy yeah. that I feel like any success that I've had will be picked apart because you've, you've yeah, you've, uh, you've, you've gotten a little too high on the hog, yeah. as they say. Yeah. You're too big for your britches. Right. Some other folksy expression, take your pick. Yeah, I'm a tall um, poppy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I've found I've I've lived in a fair number of places that um I don't know that I'd call any of the other cultures I've spent a lot of time in particularly begrudgy. Mm -hmm. But I, I think people don't like it when, you know, someone gets too high above their station. Right. Um, especially if you yourself feel like you haven't achieved as much as you want to. Seeing someone else kind of rise above mm -hmm. you'd oh, be like, Oh I'm yeah. Well, Sure, she got that promotion, but she's also a real B-I-T-C-H. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't argue um, that it's not a universal. I mean, Morrissey yeah. wrote a song, We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. Yeah, and uh, Gore Vidal said, for mm -hmm. me to be happy, it's not only successful for me to mm -hmm. succeed, it's necessary for my friends to fail. That <laughs> uh, the, is horrifying. The next even. line of the Morrissey song, too, is, and if they're northern, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning northern England? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's from Manchester. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Oh, look at their clothes. Oh, look at their eye. Don't make, why am I trying to remember song lyrics? But yeah, no, that that whole song is about mm. begrudgery. Oh yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. Of course, I, me, I mean, I, his 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 family's from Dublin, so I, he's, well, there you go. You know. Yeah. So you know, you can't argue that it's mm -hmm. it's unique. It's certainly not unique. What I'm saying is, mm -hmm. it's it's dialed up. So uh, well, that's why I'm wondering if if it's not. I, I'm wondering if it exists to a greater degree, mm -hmm. or if it is just emphasized in the Irish psyche because it's it's an important piece of how Irish people see themselves. Well, it's certainly a very, if you were to ask Irish, any mm -hmm. Irish person about begrudgery, they'll say, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. We would recognize mm -hmm. that. If you said to an American person, tell me about American begrudgery, they'd say, what? Yeah, I, what I, I would, I would not. 
What? What are you talking about? Yeah. You know, this is a country of immigrants. We all work hard, and you see, you can uh, get a job, shine and shoes, and then Back within five years, you're um, a millionaire. 1934 on Wall or whatever. Street. <laughs> yeah. This conversation's and, taking place. And, um, <laughs> uh, that kind of rubbish. But you know, the, the, I think mm-hmm. the Irish view of life is essentially tragic. Uh, it's based mm-hmm. on scarcity. It's zero sum. If you've got something, you have taken that out of my pocket mm-hmm. or out of my mouth and out of the mouths and pockets of my children and you should mm-hmm. be ashamed of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's a very different worldview. And again, I, my only question is not whether or not it exists, it's how old it is and mm-hmm. whether it dates to you know, the British occupation or mm-hmm. the Catholic colonization or, or um, the conversion rather, or, or mm-hmm. is it older? And does it come from like the bog bodies? You know, the, the, so the, like the bog bodies in the National Museum or yeah. some guy who like had nice shoes and they're like, yeah, in in the bog with you. Yeah, the gods want you because you have nicer shoes, mm-hmm. moccasins than me or whatever. And mm-hmm. chop, chop, in you go. So it's, it's really bizarre. But yeah, if you go there, if you just to read, say, um, you know, like most Irish sorts of literature or go on, on a holiday or even be there for a few weeks or a mm-hmm. couple of months, you might not notice it. But once you're aware of it, it'll start cropping up a little mm-hmm. more. You'll start seeing it. Suddenly you'll become, con- now that you've heard this podcast, mm-hmm. you'll probably be on the lookout yeah. for it and go, oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I feel like still in the, it's, to me, begrudgery is a small town thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, though. Like if you maybe if you live in a big city, you begrudge your neighbor's rent control apartment or something, mm-hmm. though, too. Like, yeah, well, Dublin's a very small town mm-hmm. and it was a smaller town in 1900 something. And um, most Irish people, in spite of you know Dublin being big, uh, are still from other towns. Mm-hmm. So you know you, you like my family. They grew up knowing every family in the town, even mm-hmm. a town of ten thousand people. My dad would have known, you know, an astonishing number of them, as would my mom. And family backgrounds would have been known, and you mm-hmm. could compare and seethe with envy and begrudgery mm-hmm. all you liked or not. Yeah. My mom is not so bad at it, but yeah, certainly dad, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's, it's one of those things that has differing levels of force. And one of the great things with me is, was escaping from it mm. because it could easily take you over if you were to not fight mm-hmm. back against it. You, you can become up, bitter. You know, very much so. Like, you know, mm. people that I worked with had better careers than me and I could just sit here, you know, loathing them like Salieri with Mozart, you know, you mm-hmm. could be like that. And that's like an acid. It's an acid inside your your own psyche mm-hmm. is just going to eat so away. You don't you. recommend begrudgery as a lifestyle <laughs> <Not choice>. really. <laughs> Only if you can transmute it. If you can take... Like, and I did at one point, uh, and little biographical information on me, but I, I used to work in the animation studio in Phoenix Park, where my Don Bluth he used to work for Disney, mm-hmm. American Tale, Land Before Time. And there was an animator in there. He came in, he was 19 years old, and he was like Mozart. And mm-hmm. he was described by many people as so good. He was like Mozart. He's one of these naturals, and he could take this most difficult of, of skills and just crank out, or I would be struggling to do two seconds a week, he would do 20. Mm-hmm. And and his drawings were just perfect. It was, there was you could tell by looking at the drawings there was no struggle. Mm-hmm. It just the scenes just poured out of him. And I became for a while uh, completely possessed by neur- uh, uh, absolutely neurotic uh, fixation mm-hmm. and detestation and envy and despair at the fact that this guy was so good and I had to struggle for every line I did and he hadn't. He didn't have to struggle for anything. And on top of that, he was like very athletic and, you know, it was like, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, I look like a praying mantis and here's this guy. <laughs> oh, no. You know, I, I go I go up to his room one day and he's got like a little barbell and he's doing like little, 
you know, curls with his arm and he's got these big muscles. These, mm -hmm. His upper arm was thicker than my chest, you know. It, come on, this isn't fair. And then, and then the begrudgery. I like you the, the way you are, darling. Well, I like me too. But, but I have to say, you know, uh, it, looking back now, he was a fantastic person to know because I learned a great deal by, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a much better artist now than I would have been if I hadn't seen yeah. this guy work. And, and I think I, I got to appreciate more about his ability by, mm -hmm. by understanding like how mm -hmm. he was able to do it. And I, 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 for a while, turned that like seething envy into, into like power. Like I was going to use that to, to force myself to work to get better. If you can do that and canalize that kind of mental energy, then that's different. But the problem is most people can't, I think, do that. Most people just end up in permanent envy and begrudgery. Mm. And, and envy is a, a deadly sin. Yeah, well, good. Yeah. And I think begrudgery I think. is a very deadly sin. So. I don't think I made the list, though. Should have. <laughs> so I was, you mentioned literature quite a ways back there, mm -hmm. and I was going to use that as a, a springboard into um, how this relates to Ulysses and James Joyce. Mm. So I'm just going to do it in this awkward way that I'm doing it right now. <laughs> So you said that you noticed this in Ulysses. So uh, just sticking with our our general conceit of the podcast here, you've not read Ulysses. Mm, correct. But you know it through having to illustrate all my blog posts. Yes, I read all your blog posts and mm -hmm. I illustrate them all and I read passages from the book. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. I wouldn't say, I, you know, I'm completely alien to it. So I've been following along. You've read more of Ulysses well. than the majority of people on the planet. Okay. So, just so the audience knows that he's not a complete <laughs> clown. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, anyway, so what passages in Ulysses have you have have made you think of begrudgery, or where do you see begrudgery in either Joyce's biography, which we've talked about mm -hmm. a fair amount, or in um, the book itself? Yeah, Daedalus's attitude toward um, Buck Mulligan. Mm -hmm. um, I see a lot of cla of just like absolute like class envy there mm. um, to where, you know, Mulligan can't help the class he was born into. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's on one level, it's completely understandable to be jealous of that, that this guy doesn't have to struggle. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still the fact that he was born into it. He didn't ask to be born into that class. And it, it stinks that, mm -hmm. you know, anybody there's this inequality, this look of the draw. Mm -hmm. But there's also an advantage to coming from, in some respects, there's a trade-off. If you are born into a more privileged class, you're also going to have that gnawing doubt that you got where you were because you had an artificial leg mm -hmm. up. But the person who climbs up from, a, from the working class knows they had much fewer uh, you know, helping hands. So they, mm -hmm. they could take far more credit for everything that they achieve. And the higher up you go on the wealth scale, so there's that. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 I don't really see that attitude reflected in Stephen Dedalus. Not at all. No, he's completely <laughs> fixated on you know just mm -hmm. damn you, uh, damn your privilege, and mm -hmm. you know you have it easy. Um, and he the detestation of Haynes to some respect. It's there's like a there's a cultural uh, begrudgery there that you know you come to my country, you learn our language, and you know you're you're diving into it and he's he's actually seems to be begrudging the guy his love of of ireland and, oh, the, absolutely. Fact, and the fact that he's going to some degree going native mm -hmm. which a lot of british did a lot of british would go to different parts of the empire and go and just go i like this country way better than england mm -hmm. to hell with england i'm going to go native and the british foreign service lost a lot of people to that they they 
couldn't trust Jenkins anymore. He's gone native, you know. Mm-hmm. He's taking a local wife and, you know, we're never going to see him again or he mm-hmm. can't be trusted, you know. We don't know where his loyalties lie anymore. He's just gone. And uh, there's, th- there's also the fact that in terms of his attitude toward Haynes that I, it really kind of bothers me is that a lot of the great heroes of, of, um, of Ireland are, are from kind of Jew, you know, not pure background. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. from England or they're from some other part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Eamon de Valera, the first sure. leader, you know, was, was half Spanish, for God's mm-hmm. sake. Um, so, you know, I, I have like a, a kind of a visceral detestation mm-hmm. of kind of purity politics and of uh, purity identity when it comes mm. to, to nationalities. I don't I don't necessarily see that in Joyce or in his portrayal of Stephen Dedalus. Mm. Um, I do agree that he begrudged Haynes a lot. Um, I think that Stephen, at his core, is, is an incredibly insecure yes. person. Yeah. And I think that Joyce, when he wrote Ulysses, purposely pr- portrayed his younger self that way, that, yeah. that he's meant to be an immature character. Right, and again, we are talking um, about a 20... 20- Two-year-old, was he? Uh, yeah, because he's yeah. two elevens. Right, 22, right, right. So, so I'm talking about, mm-hmm. if I sound harsh, I'm not just talking about mm-hmm. the character Stephen Dedalus or mm-hmm. James Joyce at 22. I'm mm-hmm. also talking about myself at 22. Okay. Um, that, that's so, I think, why Stephen is an uncomfortable character for oh, both of us, because I think yeah. we both see ourselves uh, reflected. Far in too him. close for comfort, mm-hmm. yeah. We, we've talked a bit on, on our podcast and more so on the blog about how Joyce interacted with the uh, literary elites of, of Dublin mm-hmm. in the early 20th century, which he he had access to all of them. Like, he found his way into that social circle. Like, he, right. he, you know, found his conduits and how to meet people there and was able to, you know, hobnob and get the attention of people like William Butler Yeats and Lady mm-hmm. Gregory and these these other people who you learn about in literature class now, even though he was quite young, mm-hmm. and from based on what they they said about him, you know, contemporaneously, uh, his poetry was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't like blown away by it. Like a lot of the feedback he got was like, "Just keep writing, you know, mm-hmm. you get there." Yeah. Um, I wouldn't try to sell these now. Yeah. But you'll get there. Yeah. Which how he stood out was just in his attitude towards the world, and his own deep personal conviction that he was a genius greater than any of these people um, but I've always I've always seen that like it's easy to look at it now and be like of course he knew he was a genius he knew he was destined for greatness because we know that he wrote these amazing books and that's how he's regarded now right and especially if you're a fan that's how you probably regard him right but it's it's fun to kind of do the thought experiment to use an overused term um, to try to turn the tables and think what it would be like to meet him when the name James Joyce didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know, when there weren't statues of him built, things right. named after him. And, right. You know, ever, you know. Plaques all over Dublin mm-hmm. to replace Museums all the buildings and, they tore down that you know, he wrote mm-hmm. about. Yeah. yeah. And we talked a couple weeks back about um, his reaction to the, the 1916 um, uprising in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen that pointed to as an example of his begrudgery because he felt that he had been treated so unfairly in Ireland that he was never respected as the artist he knew he was, that his potential could never be realized there, that when he finally saw them making an an earnest and, uh, if you forgive a pun, explosive attempt Mm -hmm. at bettering themselves as a nation and making a name for themselves independently, Mm -hmm. that... He was just like, 
We'll see, you know, see if they can do that, you know. Mm -hmm. That part of the reason he kind of turned his, he was very skeptical of nationalism, of course, but um, that when the nationalists started to make some forward strides and when Ireland finally got its independence, that he was, he just kind of turned his nose up at it and he he never really supported it, even though it's probably better for Ireland in the the long run. Mm -hmm. He he felt no joy at it because he hadn't benefited from it personally. Right. That. Ireland would always be this place where, you know, the, the, the sow that ate her own pharaoh or whatever that, you know, yeah. that he felt like he was, you know, deprived by being an Irish person. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, it seemed like he was taking it personally. Mm-hmm. And, and he took most things personally. And so, you know, it, whereas it's not personal, mm-hmm. it's just this is the way we are to pretty much everybody. Mm-hmm. It, for me, I had to leave because as a visual artist, Ireland is a very, or at least when I left, was a very unfriendly place. Mm-hmm. And the only uh, art forms that are really taken seriously or were taken mm-hmm. seriously would be uh, poetry, r- literature, music. Mm-hmm. And these all have the common thread that you can do them without having to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So if you have the time, you can write on pe- paper with ink, it's cheap enough. You can make music that with basic instruments. But because of the, the history of the country being basically peripheral and mm-hmm. impoverished, uh, there, there's not like France where there's a great visual art history mm-hmm. or, you know, there's no great Irish sculptors. You know, that requires real wealth. Mm-hmm. Insofar there was any of that, it was from the Anglo ascendancy. It wasn't from the native Irish. And so to this day, the Irish would have, or again, I'm speaking, you know, <laughs> asterisk uh, please remember I left the country in 94 and I've not been back for anything other than like a few weeks here and there I suspect that hasn't changed too much uh, I know that the people who made the um, animated movie Secret of Kells which is Oscar nominated were a little disappointed I think it's fair to say with the the lack of appreciation maybe or turnout within that Ireland really within Ireland yeah. they had no problem in America with America mm-hmm. They, they made more money in one weekend in New York than they made in the entire country of mm. Ireland for the entire run of the mm. movie in the country. Yeah. And that's really sad. And I think that speaks volumes for the way that the Irish look at visual arts, I think maybe mm. even to this day. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a cute thing, it's a fun thing, but should you be paid money for it? But why should you? Because mm-hmm. you're just doing the drawing. That's the attitude, I think. Well, to go back to a, a joy scene. Sorry to interrupt again. But I, I, I would take that personally uh, when I oh. was younger, but that's just the mm-hmm. culture. That's just the way the culture is. So, so for me to take that personally would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. I should definitely react to it and go, I need to get out of here and go to America or France. But mm-hmm. that's just an unfortunate reality of the, of, the, of the society, and there's historical baggage there. Mm-hmm. We just wrote a, a post on the, the blog pretty recently, if you want to find it. It's called Houses of Decay. But it talks about Joyce's attitude towards the burgeoning Irish theater scene in the early 1900s. And Yeats and Douglas Hyde and some of these other people who are well known now for various things. um, That they were, were trying to create a homegrown theater scene in Dublin. And Joyce, who was 19 at the time, was just like, this is no, 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 no. We, we sh- Ireland should not be trying to create its own theater because there is no history of theater here and you can't p- 
possibly like a, a, a nation with no a culture with no you know history of theater can't possibly produce good theater it's just going to be this shallow pathetic version of it and now Joyce also considered drama to be the highest of art forms right and so his suggestion to them was to they needed to import continental drama pieces mainly Henrik Ibsen was his his favorite mm -hmm. from Norway which just they they ignored him they never did it because their goal was to elevate Irish art and, and home homegrown things right but Joyce who in Ulysses referred to Irish art as the um, broken looking glass of a servant mm -hmm. you know, that's all Irish art was it was trash basically mm -hmm. um, of a servile people that mm -hmm. it could never be great on its own without imitating something from the continent. Hmm. Um, but he also really chafed at being from a, a country that no one had ever heard of. Because there's, there's a story uh, when he was in Paris that, you know, he said he was Irish. The French word for Irish sounds similar to the word for Dutch. And they were like, oh, you're, you're, you're from Holland? He's like, no, Ireland. And they're just kind of oh. like, like, oh, I've never met anyone from there. So, Irland and Holland would Holland, say? Holland, yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Irlande and Hollande. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, it's when I, when I tell Americans my name is Dermot and they say, oh, please meet you, Jervis. Mm -hmm. It's as annoying as that. Yeah. yeah. So, to bring this back to begrudgery, <laughs> you think it's fair to say that he, he begrudged, that he, he begrudged the, the lack of notoriety on the part of the rest of Europe? Is that a thing? I don't know. The fact that he uh, was from a country, or maybe he begrudged other countries their mm -hmm. yeah. their success or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't. Yeah, I can't speak yeah. to that. All, all I can say is, uh, what what jumps out at me is just the personal mm -hmm. envy. Yes, and, uh, and I've found as I read about his life and the way he portrayed in this book that he could be very petty mm -hmm. and that he held grudges at an Olympic level. Right. Gogarty, so Oliver St. John Gogarty, who is portrayed as Buck Mulligan in the book, that Joyce got his revenge on him and many of his other friends from Dublin by writing really, sometimes unfairly, unflattering portrayals of them in the book. Right. And that it all came from, Gogarty was one of his closest friends and they had a falling out. And I think a lot of the friction in their relationship came from the fact that Joyce never had any money that he wanted to live the life of these upper-class people that he was hobnobbing with. He didn't want them to know that his family was selling its furniture so that he could study. Mm -hmm. He was ashamed of that. And so he wanted to live like someone who just came from a wealthy family, which meant he didn't really want to work. He did, his, his only job was writing, drink all night, write all day, sleep till 4 p.m. every afternoon. Right. And uh, not act like someone from the social class he actually came from. And so, and he was so convinced of his, his own ability to see people he thought who had lesser ability than him succeed so easily and be able to just, you know, hmm. go to Europe whenever they wanted right. or, you know, say, oh, let's go to Greece this summer, you know, mm -hmm. that he, he couldn't do that. And I, I think it really bothered him. Yeah. He wanted those things. He wanted that kind of life and he never, ever had it. He was penniless most of his life. And, but he, he tried so hard to create a version of that for himself every step of the way, mm. which he had. So I, I think he, he perhaps begrudged the people who had the things he actually had. 
Mm. So first and foremost would be Gogarty, who lent him so much money. Like, yeah. especially after he came back from Paris and after his mother died, he just he he didn't really work. He had very little money. He was constantly bouncing around from place to place. He ended up in the Martello Tower because he had nowhere else to go. Mm. He was completely broke, and all of his other friends had stopped lending him money. So, because mm. he never paid them back. Right. Yeah. Difficult to pay people back when you're drinking all the, the money mm. they're lending you. Yeah. Yep. And, well, he'd also squandered their, their, uh, um, you know, their, their help for years. Mm -hmm. That If you look at the letters between him and Lady Gregory and him and Yates in 1901, 1902, they're like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll call in all the favors we can. We really want to see you succeed. Mm -hmm. And by 1904, they're just like, enough is enough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He squandered a lot of goodwill. Goodwill is the word I was trying to think of before. Right, right. Yeah. And again, it's e easy to do that when you're consumed by envy, when mm -hmm. it's just, like mm -hmm. I said, it's, it's an acid. You know, and mm -hmm. if, if that had to show through in the way he was dealing with mm -hmm. people and refusing to pay them back, like borrowing money from somebody but then begrudging them the fact that they could lend you money in the first place, mm -hmm. you're not going to be in a hurry to give them that money back. And you'll well, he, secretly, could, he couldn't pay them back. You'll, you'll resent yeah. them, you'll resent yourself. You know, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of it's a it's just walking around with a ball and chain around your mm -hmm. ankle. It's entirely psychological. It's mm -hmm. not anything that you necessarily have to carry. You don't have to like the injustice of the mm -hmm. uh, inequality, but you don't have to be defined by it either. And I know I was for a very long time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happened to me when I moved to America was it gave me some space to get away from that. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure it would have been as easy had I stayed in mm -hmm. Ireland. So I'm hoping. At least when he moved to the continent, he had a you know, mm -hmm. slightly better chance of yeah. pushing back against so. Just as far as I've gotten reading, I'm, I'm still learning as we do this mm -hmm. podcast and blog. I haven't read as much about those times, but I think he always kind of remained him, him, his prickly self. Mm. But, uh, you know, he, he, I think, had the self-awareness to know the way he behaved in those early years. Yeah. While he, it may be foundational in many ways, uh, I don't I don't know that he really saw that as like you know a, a fully formed person mm -hmm. um, but I don't know because I think he may have seen his antics when he was young as foundational and like I had to go through that phase to become who I am now which I think is debatable yeah it's believed that the two main characters in Ulysses so Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom that Stephen is the, the young, immature Joyce at the beginning of his artist's journey, and Bloom is a more mature Joyce. And, um, we'll, we'll finish Proteus eventually <laughs> in the vlog. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you get to meet Leopold Bloom in the next chapter, and he's just good. such a different person. I, yeah, he's, he's really quite charming, mm -hmm. although you do get to read about him looking at women's butts and stuff a lot. Okay. Yeah, so Stephen Dedalus, begrudger extraordinaire. Yeah, watch out for that deadly sin, man. It's uh, creeping mm -hmm. up on you. Mm -hmm. All right, do you have anything else to say about begrudgery? No, no, that's about We've kind of can, can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. Do you begrudge me anything? No. <laughs> I, don't, I don't begrudge anybody anything anymore because mm -hmm. I know everyone's got their own like baggage that they have to carry. And mm -hmm. uh, like, I, I don't envy, like, for example, I don't envy rich people. I feel sorry for them because mm -hmm. I think their lives are miserable. Um, mm -hmm. 
They've got every material <laughs> comfort they could want. And when I see their antics on the internet, I just feel ashamed for them. You're talking about Elon Musk? That, that, no, well, not so much him, but like kind of people who do like the obscene, like, you know, I've got seven Rolexes, rich kids oh. of Instagram. I mean, you are debasing your... you look your, at a lot of rich kids on Instagram? No, I, I don't follow that anymore. But <laughs> I, I read these, about it. Are these I, straw rich I, kids? I, no, no, they're, they're apparently it's I horrifying. Think they're, they're called influencers. Oh, yeah, influencers, all that internet um, rubbish. But no, I, I, I just feel embarrassed. So for our, our listeners... Dermot talks about Elon Musk a lot. <laughs> and I think that he might wish that Mr. Musk had been in the car that he shot into space. <laughs> no, it's the fanboy worship. That's what yeah. gets me. Okay, we, we don't want to get on a Musk tangent. No, no, no. Um, Fanboyism is a very, we, it's another toxic thing. We don't want to, no, we're not, we're not going down the Musk trail. No, no, no. <laughs> say, say no to Mr. Musk. We won't find heaven on Mars. That's all I'm saying. Oh, okay. Well, listeners, you can let us know what you think about begrudgery and tell us why we're wrong on the comments section of our blog. And if you go on or, holiday to Ireland, just, mm -hmm. just keep your ears open. Mm -hmm. You won't, you know, it won't be in your face, but you might mm -hmm. see something in the media or, you know, mm -hmm. an occasional stray comment might let it slip. Oh, yeah, let us know what you think. I, I'm I'm always curious how people enjoy these Dermot episodes. Mm. So let us know what you think. But yeah, I, I do think understanding Irish culture in a larger context is mm. helpful to understanding someone who wrote about it pretty intensely for most of his life. So yeah. I'm part kind of thinking seriously mm. about moving back yeah. at some point. Um, so you know, maybe we'll get to do future podcasts where we we'll just go, "Oh my God, it's even worse," <laughs> or "Or no, it's it's all gone away and everything's wonderful." Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. Anything else to say at the end before we go to the... Oh, we should probably just remind people for the nth time to, um, if they haven't already, the Patreon account for uh, Sweeney's. Yep. Um, it's really yeah, well. So yeah. a, few, a few notes at the end here. Usually we do this at the beginning, but this time we forgot. Uh, uh, yeah, Sweeney's is really close to their goal, so help push them over the line. Uh, there's a link in the episode notes to that. Um, and then just today, well, we'll, I think this, this will be the day after today when we put this up on the website, but we just, uh, dropped another blog. Can we drop a blog post or is we it post, just post a Yeah, we post a post. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, I think in the, anyway, I was going to say, I was rereading one of my posts and it said the story of the story was just very Pern Hapley-esque. But, uh, oh, we have a new blog post out that is called Mahamanvantara. God help you. That is about lots of weird things that Joyce was into when he was younger. And I'm not going to say anything more about it than that because I want you to go read it. Uh, they were not sexual things. They were intellectual things. Very widely read. I'm really mm -hmm. impressed. Like, the more we follow along mm -hmm. all the things that were, like, rocketing around his head, mm -hmm. the range is really amazing. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to know what a long Sanskrit word means and what that tells us about Joyce's psyche. Mm, and a bit please. of pico. Yeah. yeah. Uh, take a pico at our new post. <laughs> Dermot did some great artwork there. Um, and I think that's all. We'll talk yeah. to you again in a couple of weeks. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com to read our blog, which is updated weekly on Mondays with a new blog post and artwork about James Joyce's novel Ulysses, and you'll find a new podcast there as well fortnightly.
We are on Facebook. You can search for our Facebook group, Blooms and Barnacles Podcast, on Facebook. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow us at BarnacleCast. You can find our podcast pretty much any place you find podcasts. That includes iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Go ahead and subscribe, and you won't have to remember which week we're dropping the podcast. Also, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, as that helps our rankings and helps people find the podcast. And if you leave a positive review, we'll read it on the podcast. Finally, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is through email. You can email us at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. Please send questions and comments, and we'll read them on the show if we get any good ones. Until then, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.